Community Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I'm your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved with helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. And the purpose of this podcast is to expose you to great people who are helping cats daily. And hopefully you may learn a little bit about what you might do in your own community in helping free roaming cats. Today, I'm thrilled to be speaking with Julie Jacobson. Julie describes herself as a crabby old maid, born and raised in Minnesota, and she spent a career as an intelligence specialist in the U.S. Air Force, retiring as Lieutenant Colonel. That's pretty amazing, Julie. She has lived all over the world, and after settling in Tennessee, Julie got her first dog from an area shelter in 2002. Calamity Jane was a large mutt, and she changed Julie's life with her personality, pushing Julie to take in another rescue mutt, Emma Sue, and get involved in a local animal welfare group. Jackson County has no animal control, no shelter, and no veterinarian. And the group has made a tremendous difference in the unwanted pet population with a focus on spay, neuter, and education. Since January 2010, Julie has been program manager for Spay Tennessee and taken on the challenge to define rural, rural reality, which does not match national expert data. Her retired life is devoted to working with others to grow more effective spay-neuter programs across the state and encourage all shelters and rescues to alter before adoption. And I have to say, I think Julie has one of the best email addresses out there in the world, and I'm sure later she will be sharing that email address. Julie, thank you so much for coming on the Community Cats podcast. And you talked a bit about your background there in, in the bio, getting your dogs. That was really the first catalyst to help get you started. Or, or what was it that gave you the spark to get involved in animal welfare? It really was the dogs, especially Calamity Jane, uh, her personality. And she was just so cute. And I just love taking pictures of her. You know, it's, it's like having your first baby or something. You can't get enough pictures. And and then I saw an ad in the paper, the local animal welfare group was getting started and wanted um, wanted more members. And I thought, oh, maybe I can take pictures of other pets. <laughs> and yeah, six months later, I became president of the group. Um, and, I, you know, I did not expect that. As, as a lot of programs get started, you know, small spay-neuter programs and small efforts in small rural communities, you know, oftentimes there's, there's a bit of a shift and often it's called an implosion. Um, it kind of the focus changes or you find out that board members may not be as reliable as one thought. Uh, you know, and it, that sounds really negative, but I guess the reason I want to mention it is because it seems to be fairly common. So if your group is struggling and going through some difficulties, it just, it happens. Because you know, I think initially our group, they thought having a shelter was a good idea. And um, we, you know, we, we were starting to shift, you know, hey, maybe prevention is really the answer. And in fact, because one of the people that I turned to for help when I joined the group, I was told under no circumstances should we talk to people at the shelter in the county next door. So after I became president of the group, I thought, I think those are exactly the people I should talk to. <laughs> and because yep. and, yeah, their, their focus was, in fact, on spay and neuter and prevention. And because we really can't shelter or adopt our way out, especially in counties without animal control. So, yeah, I, I talked to those folks and we really got rolling on spay and neuter. So basically what you're saying is you learned by example of a neighboring organization of sort of what you thought was a, a best practice or 
uh, best way to tackle a problem that you saw in your own community that wasn't being solved. And so you look to your neighbors for sort of guidance uh, to help sort of lead the direction for the group that you were involved with? Right. Yeah. Because what they were saying just made perfect sense. You know, it just prevention worked. You know, if you like, like Ruth Steinberger says in Oklahoma, if your basement's flooding, what do you do first? Start bailing or turn off the spigot? <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, it just, it just made such sense. And yeah, then I was begging for people to have lunch with me regularly just so I didn't feel like I was crazy. And because it can be frustrating in rural communities and trying to push spay neuter and, and have people not try to change your focus and try to get you to take in animals. And you know, we do some fostering on the side, but that's very limited. Mm-hmm. We just we don't want to be animal control or do the county's job for them. So did you feel by being out in rural Tennessee, it was a bit isolating and that you felt like it's only, you know, one or one or two people and that what are the things that you may have done to help create a support network or sort of a community from within the folks that you knew? Yeah, really reaching out to neighboring counties and finding some like-minded people uh, really helped. Because within our our community, it was it was really kind of tough. You know, um, we got bullets in our donation jar. Uh, like little old ladies might donate five dollars to us, but ask us to please not send a thank you note because they didn't want their neighbors to know that they gave to us. Wow, it just is not cool to care about animals. And I, I mentioned my dogs, you know, they were both 75 pounds, and people here couldn't believe that I let 75-pound dogs live in my house. And so you know, they just, it's, it's kind of not cool to care about animals, although I, I, I do think that's changing because we're going back to 2004. Things have really progressed a lot here. Well, that's great. It's wonderful to hear that things are changing. I mean, many of you know, I I live up in Vermont. We hear a lot about the uh, situation with uh, animals in the South and and that kind of thing. And it's great. Um, Just turning the the sort of the subject more onto cats, how, how is it that you gotten involved with situation with cats in Tennessee and what have you seen sort of changing over the last, you know, several years that you've been involved with Space Tennessee with regards to the cat overpopulation situation there? Well, we were very lucky uh, back in 2004, 2005, there, about an hour away was a group that did a, um, like seven or eight times a year, they did this huge weekend snip and tip and they would do a few hundred cats and we could get signed up. And we had cat ladies here in our community and we, we had a, a bank of traps and we would help all these farmers and all these people out in rural areas who suddenly found themselves with 20 or 25 cats and we would get them all trapped and take them to this free snip and tip clinic, which was a great resource. And looking back, I think we were so fortunate that that really helped us, I think, get a handle on things because we, we took a lot of advantage of, of that and got donations from the farmers, you know, and, and things and, and the caretakers. But I think that helped us get a little bit ahead. And that that program went away. But I think by that time we were we were in a much better position. And so then and then we just had our own traps and we could loan them to people. In fact, just last last week, I had a great story. This fella called, and of course, usually Southern men don't call in for spay-neuter help, <laughs> but he called in and because he had he, what he claimed was a mama cat and some kittens. And of course, what he really had was like three adult cats and the litter of kittens had been born last July. <laughs> so they were no longer kittens. Right. Uh, but we lent him some traps and uh, made him a deal and he trapped himself and got them to the clinic, and so it was a total of eight cats, 
And he called to thank us. And we, of course, we had to get our traps back from him. But, but there were several amazing things about the first of all, he was so grateful and so thankful because we often don't get a lot of thanks. But he was also very proud of his, doing the eight cats and how six were females and all six females were pregnant. Oh, my goodness. Wow. It was a total of 22 kittens. And sometimes, you know, people get kind of balky about that or uncomfortable, but he was over the moon thrilled and proud because he, he knew exactly what would have happened to him right. if he had not taken action. And then also he wanted to make sure that he had a chance uh, to clean the traps before he returned them to me. And I have to say that's a first. Well, that's nice. That's very nice that he appreciated the help and, and was able to, to give back in his own way. And uh, so that's a, it's a great story. It's a great story about uh, just an individual reaching out and, and being able to get the help that that he needed for those cats. And uh, so that that's great to hear that that's happening. Can you talk a little bit? We've worked together in mentoring other groups and, and you've done that um, throughout Tennessee. What are the, some of the things that you do to give back to help others in developing their programs? Um, first of all, I try to reassure them that you are not alone. Um, it, you know, there's 95 counties in Tennessee, and over half of them do not have animal control or a shelter. And even those that do have shelters, uh, many times they don't take in cats. So um, when I do meetings or talk to people, you know, they all think they're in the poorest county with the least amount of government support, the least amount of help for cats. And it's, it's, you are not alone. We are all in this together. And it, we all have kind of a, a very similar story. Uh, but just helping teach people, you can, you really can loan traps out. Just make people know that your program is available. You know, have some flyers and word of mouth advertising is absolutely our best thing. Because like this fellow I just mentioned from last week, he's going to tell his sisters about our program. And so I'm sure we'll be loaning out more traps. But just doing that and letting helping these people help themselves and helping to pay for it. Uh, really does help. And yet, yeah, most of Tennessee is is very similar. People are not alone. I just ask you an interesting question, sort of a theoretical question. Um, if you saw a stray cat on the street traveling around where you are today or or in a more even a more urban environment, what would you do for that cat? Well, it, like especially in my area, I, I figure it belongs to the house nearby, or at least the house nearby is feeding it. And I just make sure that those people have our phone number because a lot of times people are helping put flyers and stuff for us in mailboxes. I guess in urban areas, we might it, it, a lot of times in the urban areas there is something like animal control. Mm-hmm. We don't have the true feral colonies like people are used to. There are no malls, for example. Right. And I guess I, I really don't see a lot of stray cats. When I see one, I figure it's just an outside cat that belongs to the house nearby. Right, right. Do you have tra- trailer park areas, or is it mainly barn cats? It's mainly barn cats. We have a few trailer parks, but I think we've kind of gotten those cleaned up because we've been working with the trailer park managers. Because one of the things is it's sometimes it's difficult to just let landlords know it really is perfectly fine to have a clause in the rental contract that says the pets have to be fixed. That's just, that's a bit of the education process that's been, I guess, kind of surprising to me. Just, yes, you really, it is okay to do that. You can require this and we can help. I actually had an interesting question come to me via email yesterday of, of a person. Their their town is proposing a mandatory spay-neuter regulation. Do you have any specific thoughts or ideas with regards to that? Well, that's not a bad idea. Here in Tennessee, that when I have seen the most veins bulging out of necks from people being so angry and ready to explode is when you start talking about mandatory spay-neuter. Um, they are not, it, you know, there's, there is kind of the rural Appalachian 
hillbilly mentality. And I don't mean to sound pejorative about that, but when you think about that, these are independent people. They are used to just being on their own and, and having to just make do and get by. And so there's a very strong streak of independence. So mandatory spay-neuter across the board, I don't think is very feasible. Well, first of all, we have spay-neuter laws in Tennessee regarding altering animals before adoption from shelters. Those laws are violated left and right, and there is no enforcement authority. There's no penalty for, for noncompliance. So I tend to not be a big fan of, of legislation because there's, there's no enforcement. That makes sense. You do. You mentioned the importance of altering before adoption. If, say, somebody who's listening to this is like, wow, I'm going to go to a shelter and I'm going to adopt a, a cat today, trying to help the cause, do my part. Why is it important that they adopt from a shelter that alters before adoption? Because, well, this is nationwide, not just in Tennessee, although I think we have a higher percentage of shelters not altering for adoption. But the studies do show that when a shelter is releasing intact animals back to the public, you know, from whence the animals came, uh, it, over time, it really shows that that shelter itself it really becomes a, a primary source of unwanted pets. Because those oops litters just happen, you know, nationwide, less than 40% of people get the animal fixed after it's been adopted, at least not before there's been a litter. Um, that's And that's just not good. When we in animal welfare cannot blame the public for pet overpopulation and pet homelessness when we contribute to the problem. Um, what I try to tell shelter managers here is, you know, these these March intact adoptions are going to be your summer intakes. You know, your, your fall intact adoptions are your spring intakes. It's really hard for some people to connect those dots. So, you know, in thinking about what we've shared today, are there any other topics or really important key points that you'd like to share with any of our listeners with regards to community cats and how they can make an impact with their cats in their community? Well, really, just fixing cats, and if you're going to do a spay-neuter program, you really have to fix all the cats in that area, in that household, or, you know, in the colony. And you have to get ahead of the reproductive cycle. Like, all spay-neuters are not equal. If you have a limit, for example, because some groups do that, they set a limit, we will only help fix two animals per household or two cats per household, but you allow three to remain intact. To me, you've just thrown your money away. You really spend your money to, to clean up problems that will no longer contribute to the problem. You know, if you can stop the reproductive cycle in one area, that's what you have to do. You're not going to reach all the households in your community, more than likely. So it really is important that you reach all the animals in the households that do reach out to you. You will never get ahead of the reproductive cycle. Sounds like wise, wise advice is, you know, ensuring you get the the whole group in one big whack. So tell me a little bit about Spay Tennessee and how people can find you. And if they aren't in Tennessee, how people might be able to find some spay neuter resources across the country. Uh, well, in, in Tennessee, we have a network. There's t over 20 spay neuter clinics and you know they, they vary widely in size and how often they're open and how many surgeries they do. We also have five mobile clinics and then we have 80 some spay neuter assistance programs again they vary widely in scope as far as you know how aggressive they are and how much they're able to cover and do uh, but all of the all of their information is on our website spaytennessee.org people folks can click on a map and um, 
either if they don't know where their county is on the map, there's a drop-down menu too, and you can just click on that. Because everything in, in the rural south is very county-centric, so most of our programs cover either one county or a couple of counties. Uh, yeah, life is just county-centric here. Um, and people can also call in, and then we can help get them to the service that can help them. Because the, the entire state is covered by a spay-neuter assistance program of some kind. As far as nationwide, ooh, what do you want to get into there? Well, uh, with the United Spay Alliance website, direct people to each individual state, would that be possible? Yeah, they do. And there, yeah, there's, there's a whole bunch of people. I think there's a lot of groups trying to reinvent the wheel. ASPCA and PetSmart and Spay USA. Everybody's trying to have their own little database. But yeah, I, United Spay Alliance is a good place to go and click on the map and see if you do have a statewide program. And if you don't, volunteer to start one up. <laughs> yeah, that's also possible. <laughs> You know. finish your own backyard first, you yep. know, because that's what I feel. Our county is only 11,000 people in Tennessee. And so I feel like by the time we had done that 3,000 pets here, which was triple the number that unfixed animals that should have been here, our call volume did go down uh, from like five to 600 animals a year to now two to 300. That gave us time then to focus more on, on a more statewide effort. We could look up and see the forest for the trees. Yep. Yeah. Do you feel that that call volume is going to proceed downward even more? It's interesting because last year was our biggest year in about five years. And the difference was cats. We did about 100 more cats. We do about 100 or 110 dogs a year and then about a, about the same number of cats. But we did like 200 cats oh. last year. So there was a significant jump. So I think that we have reached a tip. Like I said, we loan carriers to help get cats to vets. We loan traps. And we do work to make it affordable. There is an affordable price point for every household. Like even that fellow with the eight cats, I just made him a package deal. You know, it's a hundred bucks, you know, for right. eight cats. Yeah. And $100 sounds like a lot, but when, when people get it and they know what they're facing, if they don't do it, they can come up with that hundred bucks. Or like I said, if he couldn't, I would have I kept working with him. Right. That does work more often than not. But I think so. I think that in my mind, we have to do probably 200 animals a year just to just to maintain. Again, without an animal control facility and with without any kind of shelter here, I think we have to just our 200 is our maintenance figure, yep. which some experts would tell you that's the number you have to do to make a difference. You know, I say no, but yeah, and I but I think we we will continue to see a higher percentage of cats done. That's great. It's wonderful that cats are getting more. I would assume at some point in time, probably with spay-neuter in Tennessee, your spay-neuter numbers will be two-thirds cats and one-third dogs, hopefully, in the near next three to five years. Well, I think one of the main things is I think the education piece is finally happening about how early kittens can get pregnant and how early they go into heat. And because when people call and say, well, my vet says we can't fix the cat till she's six months old. And I say, I bet your vet has gray hair. <laughs> they say, oh, do you know him? <laughs> no, I know the type. And then you try to have a polite conversation about keeping current on things. And right, right. Because the reality is kitten can be pregnant at four months. Easily. Uh, yeah. In Tennessee are seeing them in heat at 11 and 12 weeks old. And it is perfectly fine to spay or neuter a kitten at two pounds. With proper training. Yep. And the veterinarians here across the state are specially trained. And the kittens bounce right back. It, they don't even know they've had surgery. It, it's an easy procedure. By the end of the day, the litter of kittens, they're 
beating each other up in the cage, you know, and so it's it's really uh, a great time to get your cat spayed or neutered. And if you do work with a private veterinarian, you should ask them specifically about their willingness to spay or neuter at an early age. And if they don't have that training, you should ask them too, because it's so important to get your cat spayed or neutered, I would say, no later than four months of age. Yes, yes. And Humane Alliance, uh, humanealliance.org, they do have protocols and they have DVDs they will send and you veterinarians can attend training there. Even if they're not working at a high volume spay neuter clinic, uh, private vets can go there just to learn those pediatric surgical techniques and protocols. So that's another thing an individual can do is, uh, you know, a veterinarian is going to listen to a client much more than an outsider. So as a client, bring it to the attention of your veterinarian and ask them to be proactive and to help the cause just by offering this this extra service. And it would be a great help in the community to do that. What um, we started out with them, the private vets, okay, if you don't want to do it for your clients, would you please do it for for kittens and puppies up for adoption? That's kind of how you get them to step on the slippery slope. Yep. <laughs> Yep. But in a, in a good way, because when you can see that, you know, look, if, if we do not alter these puppies before adoption, just about guaranteed, there's going to be a litter of 10 that comes into the shelter. Or in the case of kittens, you know, five or six more kittens will be coming in. Um, would you please do it pre-adoption? And they will agree with that. Even the AVMA, their policy supports pediatric surgery, particularly in the case of pre-adoption spay-neuter. So anyway, so we're, we're running tight on time here. And Julie, I want to thank you so much for spending this half an hour with us and and talking about all the great work that you're doing in Tennessee. And uh, just a reminder for the group, if there are people that are interested in getting in touch with you, what's the best way to reach you, your website, and maybe your email address, which I love. (laughs) The website is spaytennessee.org. My email is spaysilla at yahoo.com and that's s-p-a-y-z-i-l-l-a uh, i also i'm on twitter at spazilla uh, yeah that's my skype name too that's kind of who i am excellent julie thank you so much for joining us today and thank you everyone for joining in for the community cats podcast and check in with you tomorrow for another episode Thanks for listening to the Community Cats Podcast. For more information, other podcasts, or to find out how you can support the show, visit www.communitycatspodcast.com. And thanks. Thanks.